Good morning and welcome to Rising. Emily is buzzing in from Vermont. Emily, welcome. Hey, Ryan, it's good to see you. You may hear the, the gentle sounds of violin in the background. I think somebody's practicing for a wedding today in the, in the room next door. So there's an, an added sort of a charm to the show today. It is, it is definitely wedding season in Vermont. I'm glad you could be up there for it. Uh, so today, today we're going to start uh, with the Senate passage last night of, the, of gun legislation, something that uh, people thought was basically impossible, bipartisan gun legislation. It was, it was whittled down fairly significantly, but not so significantly that it doesn't include some provisions that Clarence Thomas and his friends on the Supreme Court might find to be unconstitutional, which we'll talk about in a moment. So let's run through what's, what made it into the bill. So basically, uh, people 21 and under are going to have enhanced background checks. Previously, uh, before this law, well, now, since it hasn't become law yet, the, the background check, the federal government basically has what, three days to conduct, conduct a background check. If they don't get it done in that amount of time, they, they then, uh, you know, the, the, the owner is allowed to sell the weapon. This extends that to 10 days because, you know, they were so backlogged that often the background check couldn't get done in time. Uh, it closes what, what's called a boyfriend loophole, uh, which says that if you're a domestic abuser, uh, then you, you can have, your, uh, you can have your, your gun rights kind of restricted if, if you've been convicted, uh, you know, even if you're not married to the, the person. Uh, and it also and it provides funding for red flag laws, which, you know, are a place where people in the community can say, hey, this person's nuts. They might shoot up a school. Maybe we should make sure that they don't have a giant arsenal of weapons. And it also provides a bunch of money for mental health and for school security. Which one of those you wanna, you wanna take first? What do you think is the most important? Well, I think the most important is the, the federal funding for red flag laws. And uh, I think, you know, I did a radar on this a, a couple of weeks ago. I, I personally think there's little evidence that red flag laws stop mass shootings. Um, I'm completely in favor of targeted red flag laws. But I think a problem, especially for those who's on the right, is that this is this is blanket funding for red flag laws. And there are some red flag laws that take away a Second Amendment right without due process. Now, if we want to get rid of the Second Amendment right, if that's the goal, um, then that's a different question. Of course, I don't agree with that, but you can't infringe on the the right itself without due process. And I think that's a big problem with this bill. That said, I think the reason this bill passed, um, and I sort of think of it as legislative catharsis, um, I think that's the reason it passed is because it is pretty watered down um, to the point of, of being you know, almost innocuous. Um, it's, it's a lot of funding. I don't know, Ryan, what, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, the, the right was up in arms, no pun intended, about this red flag provision, yet they came around in the end. So did they, what did they, what did they do to the, do you know what they did to those red flag laws to get the support of, you know, what, what was it, 15 Republicans or so in the end? They put a bunch of nonsense language in the bill in a very Senate Capitol Hill fashion um, that said we want to protect people's rights, we want to protect due process, and there should be penalties um, wherever that is infringed upon, which is just unenforceable. Um, it's it's language, basically. So that's basically they, they uh, fixed it with uh, posturing and rhetoric, which again, you know, if, if you disagree with the, the Second Amendment, that's a different question. But the uh, due process part of it is genuinely tricky. And that's actually, I know we're going to talk about this later in the segment. That's exactly what happened in the Supreme Court decision that Justice Thomas wrote this week uh, about New York's 
red flag laws. And I'll, I'll just quickly add, um, a red flag law existed in Buffalo and was not effectively used. Um, there were, as we've talked about on the show, many red flags in Uvalde. Um, there, it's, it, it feels good. There's the what one of my colleagues calls the do something caucus um, in Congress. And that's where you see this legislative catharsis come in. It feels good to do something. Um, but I, I'm not confident that this is going to prevent tragedies. I think just by itself, enhanced background checks for 21 and under uh, and extending the background check to 10 days could could that that alone could save some amount of lives. Uh, But I think you're right that it doesn't really go. You know, it's it's not going to upend the situation. There is one thing I wanted to flag that I hope that, you know, progressives in the House and also conservatives in the House take a look at when it goes through. So basically, there are Two new, two, new, two new elements of the law are being added to uh, what's called the you know, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, which is you know, around straw purchasing and, around, and ba- basically adding these new crimes to what could be classified as racketeering. And when you get into racketeering, you can get into capital punishment. Uh, so, you know, you, I think people have to be very nervous in moments uh, where everybody wants to, quote unquote, do something that they don't mm-hmm. accidentally do something that is that is going to have people, you know, wind up on death row for something that nobody really thinks anybody should be on death row for. And so because of the expansive nature of kind of racketeering laws and capital punishment in the United States, it it is it it can be easy to have slippery legislative language slip into, you know, those, you know, into those kind of draconian areas. And so I, I hope that they take a close look at that. Because, it, you know, it's in nobody, I don't think it's in anybody's interest to try to make some of these cases capital cases. That's a really good point to flag. And on a similar note, I think it's worth looking at the wording in the boyfriend loophole, the so-called boyfriend loophole language in this bill, which is very vague. And you can see that easily being used, um, uh, being used in ways that hurt innocent people um, and don't actually do. And, and again, like I actually hope that the language is effective and it works, um, but it is really, really vague. And those those do something moments are the ones that I mean, they voted on this bill within a few hours of the text being released, which is as good of an, an indication as, as ever that they're trying to do something symbolic, that the particulars are just broadly um, you know, diluted to the point that everyone's going to agree on it. But then you also never know what gets shoved into the bill. Um, and this is this is one of those bills, I think, where that is absolutely of concern. And I I mean, this country needs solutions. Um, I just don't think this is one of them. Well, I think one of the reasons that some of this gets so convoluted and you wind up with these weird situations where language is like drifting into racketeering places is because the Supreme Court is increasingly carving out like gigantic areas of gun regulations and saying that you just can't go here. Uh, so therefore, they're, so they're, they end up then trying to have an impact on public safety and public health while fiddling at the edges. And if they fiddle too hard at the edges, they can end up breaking something weird. So you can't just have a rational conversation about this, uh, which, which brings us to the Supreme Court uh, decision in which Clarence Thomas and, and five other Republicans ruled that they're basically striking down New York's concealed carry law. And the reasoning, and help me understand how this isn't the craziest thing that I've ever heard in my life. Like, <laughs> the, the reasoning that Clarence Thomas lays out here is he says, look, you can only 
have a gun law that is constitutional. If the, if the gun law existed you know, at the beginning of the country, which there were barely any laws because Congress hadn't been set up yet to start passing laws, uh, and if it was addressing kind of an issue that was a problem you know, in 1789. You know, so unless it, unless, unless it fits those things, then your gun law can't stand. And, and in the case, he, 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 even, he even says, yeah, there were scattered gun laws in the late 18th century and then in the 19th century, but those were just scattered gun laws. So you don't just have to have, you can't just say, well, look, okay, actually New York did do this, or actually Philadelphia did do this. Because then he'd say, well, that's not enough. Did, did everyone in the country do this you know, immediately at the start of the country? And if not, then you, can't, then you can't pass these laws. And that feels to me an argument that, that legislation is un- unconstitutional, which he, he, that might be the thing that he believes, that, that fundamentally like all laws are somehow kind of restricting personal freedom and that only what is in the Constitution, that's it, can't, can't go beyond that. Congress can't pass laws, period. Congress shall make no law, just period. Uh, there is that, you know, you see, you see those bumper stickers. Uh, so why is that not the, why does that not just gut the ability of a, a democratic people to, you know, democratically enact laws within a constitutional framework? Well, I think that's a really interesting segue from the conversation we just had about the Senate bill, because a lot of the issue here is with the Second Amendment itself. I think there are a lot of uh, people, I actually think the the broad sort of perspective on the left about guns is kind of anti-Second Amendment in the sense that like the laws would say, and this is what Clarence Thomas is talking about, you can't put a burden on people to exercise what is a right. And so if you don't have a, in a right enshrined uh, constitutionally to bear arms, then, and it's just, you know, your right, like your, your right to drink coffee, like I'm drinking right now, then you can place more burdens on it, right? The state can say you have to do X, Y, and Z to be able to do uh, this. Whereas if it's something that's actually a right in the Constitution, that's what's at stake in New York. You can whether you can carry in public, um, he's saying the state can't impose these the, the these burdens for you to be able to do what is a right. And so that to me gets to where the the loggerheads is here, and that I think on the left, this idea that the the right to bear arms is something fundamental that um, you know you you have to have due process to take away, um, and that you have to you can't impose those burdens. That is actually the problem in and of itself. And honestly, I understand that argument. I disagree with it, but I fully understand it um, because the levels of gun violence we have in this country, and I'm not talking just about mass shootings every single day um, in our major cities, our suicide rate by, by gun. Uh, I understand, uh, but it is, it is there. But it's, it's only been since what, 2008 with Heller, the Washington DC law, where the second amendment was read that way by the Supreme court. So it's, it's not as if this is, you know, some ancient, ancient tradition. I was old by the time uh, you know this. This was this was rewritten. The, Clarence Thomas and the and the rest of these justices have just ignored the part of the Second Amendment. They're like, you know what? This part that says a well-regulated militia being essential, uh, we're just 
we're just going to pretend that that part isn't there and we're going to rewrite this Second Amendment so that it fits our idea that it's that it's all about individuals it has nothing to do with a well-regulated militia because if if well if if regulations are literally writ well good regulations a well-regulated militia that's literally written into the Second Amendment then regulations that well regulate things should be not not just constitutional but obvious and and, pra and practically a requirement in order to in order to so that people can you know really genuinely uh, express you, know, uh, you know manifest these freedoms that are written into the Second Amendment. Right, and I think what Thomas is doing in this decision is saying that there's a balance on the regulation that if the if the regulatory burden shifts to the citizen and away from the government, then that's where the problem lies. And if you have something that's a right, a constitutional right, that's a different, um, that's, that has to be a different balance. So I think that's what, that's what he's saying. Um, and Heller, I would argue Heller is textualism and originalism, and that's just what Clarence Thomas is, and that's what this decision um, is too. Although I think you, you make a good point about the words well-regulated, uh, but I don't think anyone would argue there should be no gun regulation, just that the burden should be mm. on government to take away rather than the citizen to, to prove they can um, have that right. We'll see about that. And I'll come back to a poorly, poor grammar in the Second Amendment. Uh, <laughs> yes. But anyway, we'll, we'll tell you what's on our radars. Uh, up next, stick around for that. The Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade by a 6-3 ruling. Donald Trump promised that he would appoint justices to the Supreme Court that would strike down Roe. Those justices have now fulfilled that promise. Emily, what's your reaction to this ruling, and how, how closely do you think that it mirrors what was uh, leaked previously? It's odd to have such a momentous and, and such a, a landmark decision um, be so predictable because we had that leak. It's sort of strange that this decision, as we have been able to go through it just a little bit because it, it just came out moments ago and we're breaking it down here within moments really of it coming out. Um, it, it's strange that we we basically knew exactly what this was going to look like. I think, I, I'm sure there are, there are tweaks in the final ruling. Um, but in spirit, it seems at least so far to be very similar to Alito's leaked majority opinion um, that we've known about for uh, weeks now. Um, we've covered here extensively uh, for a while. And Ryan, I don't know about you, um, there have been major Supreme Court decisions uh, that come out every single year. And it's, it's always um, a rush to sort of go through the document itself and you know, the country can be sort of struck by a judicial lightning bolt in a moment's notice. In, in this case, that happened, but we've known pretty much what it would look like um, for a while. It's, it's odd. Right. Was it, um, I think May 2nd was when Politico uh, reported on its leaked draft of the opinion. And, and going through it so far, it looks like it's you know, fairly consistent with that with that opinion so far. It is it is written uh, by Alito. You know, th so this is the result of of forty years of of right wing organizing, and I think for many of those forty years, a lot of the people involved uh, with this movement were were not serious. You know, did not did not think that yes. this alliance that the kind of uh, you know Republican establishment had struck with the kind of evangelical conservative movement 
was actually going to go ahead and catch the car, was actually going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Democrats, in fact, uh, you know, privately, you know, for my entire lifetime, up until a f very recently, were saying Republicans are never going to actually overturn Roe v. Wade. They're not, they're, they, would, they would never do that. They're not that crazy. Uh, well, no, like <laughs> they did and they did it. Uh, so how, how did the kind of the how did Democrats miss this and how did the Republican establishment kind of lose control of the the monster that they created in this lab? Well, that's a really interesting point as uh, somebody who would probably be considered part of that monster. Uh, I think there are a lot of people over. Oh, at you the were RNC. in that lab. You, there, you yeah. were you know, you're, or not you because you were too young at the time. Uh, but the movement that you're a part of was kind of dragged into the Republican coalition with the promise that, you know, we're going to reassert the patriarchy. And this is this is kind of our our, our kind of proxy fight that we're going to wage over it. And did you believe it even like when no. you were younger? No, absolutely not. It's unthinkable. And this is in the Associated Press's copy of their article announcing that Roe was overturned. They say, and this is odd for an Associated Press report for, for copy from essentially a wire report, but they said this was previously basically unthinkable. And I think that's actually right. Um, and what your point is really interesting about the, the lab monster, um, because I think there are a whole lot of people, and I said this as soon as that Dobbs argument um, was made and the justices seemed pretty receptive to it uh, back in the fall, I guarantee you there are a whole lot of people at the RNC right now shaking in their boots. They did not want this to happen. Um, the, the Republican establishment is not going to be happy about this at all because uh, we, we do know that polls find majority of people, even though they aren't super able to define Roe very well and the consequences of it, are not supportive of it being overturned. That said, um, I think it's also very important to say that thanks to decades of left-wing activism, because of decades of, of left-wing activism, whether you're thankful for it or not, um, abortion remains legal and will remain legal in about half of the country. In many, many states, the right will still be there. This decision to overturn Roe is one that at least legal a lot of scholars would have believed with because Roe itself was rooted in this sort of tenuous right to privacy in the 14th Amendment that it, it wasn't the, the argument for abortion being legalized through that right to privacy. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Lawrence Tribe, these people for years have said Roe was always, uh, liberal legal scholars have said Roe was always in danger because the, the, the opinion itself was never that sound and was never really rested on sound foundation. So let's talk about the implications um, and, and then we can run and we can come back and maybe do some more, more on this. But so as of right now, there are, are there not trigger laws in states across the country that have now banned abortion. In other words, one, there were, were a lot of red states that passed laws that would that were waiting for Roe to fall. And the moment that Roe falls, the new laws that, and so if you're a 13 year old uh, who's who's pregnant right now, who has a who has an appointment Monday for an abortion, uh, what in a red state? What are the implications? Or in a state where the, there are these trigger laws, is is that now illegal? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And there are states that had trigger laws, for instance, like New York, um, where it'll it's it, Roe has been codified. Um, and so that's on the books now that Roe has fallen. The the right is there in the, the state law. Um, but you're right. in in red states that have trigger laws, um, I forget how many the number is. Those are states that tend to have already uh, really stringent restrictions on on abortion access and so it's and there aren't a lot of clinics i'm assuming operating in the vast majority of those states but yes absolutely people will immediately uh i suspect have to cross state lines um or have uh the sort of abortion by mail process uh until laws start to target that which is is something that's definitely coming incoming in, in just future months as well And this is a developing story. Uh, Stick around. We're going to have more on this uh, very soon. Hey, Ryan, what's on your radar this morning? Well, you might have noticed that as the depth and the magnitude of the crises that we're facing as a country and as a planet have gotten larger and larger, the things that we argue about publicly have gotten smaller and smaller. In fact, we're now having a national conversation about the virtues of a drag queen story hour at the local park or the local library. Meanwhile, the major decisions about the shape and the future of the economy are made by other officials explicitly carved out from democratic accountability. And so elected representatives of the people are left to plead their case to the chair of the Federal Reserve to please don't throw millions of people out of work for no reason. And in her exchange with Chairman Jay Powell this week, Elizabeth Warren also got to the heart of what's so disastrously wrong about our approach to inflation. So let's play some of that here. Uh, Thank you, uh, Acting Chairman. I appreciate the help of the Chairman this morning. And thank you for being with us, Chair Powell. So Americans are struggling with rising costs and all eyes turn to the Fed. Last week you announced that the Fed would raise rates by three quarters of a percentage point, the biggest increase in nearly 30 years. So let's talk about what the Fed is and isn't doing when it raises interest rates to try to bring down inflation. Let's start with gas prices. The price of gas is up 40% since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Chair Powell, will gas prices go down as a result of your interest rate increase? I would not think so, no. Okay, so that's a pretty big admission. Gas prices are a pretty big deal, and it's largely gas and other energy prices that has people getting crushed in this economy. Going from $2 gas to $5 gas is a brutal hit, and it takes energy to make basically everything. So when energy prices go up, prices increase across the board. And Jay Powell, of course, can't do anything to make Saudi Arabia decide to pump more oil if they've decided not to because they're mad at Joe Biden over his criticism of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So Warren then turned to food prices. So let's look at another necessity, food. Price of groceries is up nearly 12 percent this year. Americans feel the pinch. No matter how much groceries cost, people still got to eat. Chair Powell, will the Fed's interest rate increases bring food prices down for families? I I wouldn't say so, no. Okay. Okay, so the Fed knows that its rate hikes, which could throw millions of people out of work, won't actually lower the price of food or gas, but they're doing it anyway. So Warren and Powell talked about why, and here's some of that. Rate hikes won't make... Vladimir Putin turn his tanks around and leave Ukraine. Rate hikes won't break up monopolies. Rate hikes won't straighten out the supply chain 
or speed up ships or stop a virus that is still causing lockdowns in some parts of the world. And that led to this lengthy exchange, which is worth playing in full. Chair Powell, you said last week that interest rate increases, quote, moderate demand. Can you just explain a little more about what that means? Sure. So uh, we, we think about uh, interest rate increases as affecting financial conditions and then the economy through three broad channels, the first of which is uh, interest-sensitive spending. So that's durable goods and automobiles and things like that. So interest rates go up. Uh, people's demand for, uh, as a result of higher interest rates, will, will, will moderate or decline so that supply and demand can get into better balance. The second channel is just asset prices generally. Uh, interest rates, as they go up, will cause asset prices to moderate across the economy, and people spend a little bit less out of their, out of their lower, lower level of wealth. The third channel is the exchange rate, which is really just another asset price, and that just uh, basically as, as, uh, as the dollar strengthens, uh, um, sorry, as, as rates go up, uh, the dollar would strengthen, which would um, uh, tend to, to drive. Uh, so I appreciate this, and I do I appreciate the explanation, but let me just see if I can just put a little uh, uh, more plain vanilla uh, explanation of what's going on here. If I understand what you've said and what economists are saying across the board is that when you raise interest rate, there's going to be less money to invest. And that is, it's going to dampen business investment. Is that a fair statement? I, I think the idea is to Makes it more expensive moderate demand to invest. so that it can be in better balance with supply. Okay. And this, so the current it's going situation to make it more, demand is well in excess of if supply in some areas of our economy. More expensive to invest which in turn is going to throw workers out of work. And when they're out of work, they have less money to spend. So I get that rate increases stop companies from spending money to build new plants or to buy new trucks or to hire new people. Right, Chair Powell? When money's more expensive, they're less inclined to do that. I think that's what you just said on asset pricing, right? Well. In the labor market, you have, as you know, you have uh, a situation where there's a shortage of workers and there are two, va two job vacancies for every person who's actively looking for work. So part of this is to get the labor market back into balance. All right, you hear that? Part of this is to get the labor market back into balance. Let's think about that for a moment. The best thing that has come from this economy is what's called a tight labor market. That's when unemployment is unusually low. In that environment, in order to entice enough workers, companies have to raise wages. They have to offer better benefits and working conditions. They can't sexually harass or discriminate against employees with as much ease as they did in the past because workers can leave and get a new job. In our current political economy, elites refer to that situation as out of balance. The balance that they want is one where there are many applicants for every job. And so raising interest rates will make sure there are fewer jobs, which means that if you start getting uppity at work and making crazy demands like better pay or a union, they can get rid of you and easily replace you. And by the way, here's something for the anti-immigration people to think about. If we really do have a labor shortage, as in there really aren't enough people able to do the jobs that we need filled, then there are two ways you can, you can solve that problem. You can bring in more workers or you can shrink the economy so there are fewer jobs. If you bring in immigrant workers who are ready to fill those jobs and bring them out of the shadows so they don't undercut wages, then you can continue to grow the economy and continue to have low unemployment. If you keep immigrants out, 
then you have to raise interest rates and slow down the economy. It's a perfect example of cutting off our nose to spite our face. But at least Jay Powell is admitting exactly what's going on here. Workers, he thinks, have too much power and capital wants to get things back into balance. So, Emily, this was a pretty clear exchange between Warren and Powell. Powell says, no, uh, what, what I'm doing isn't going to have any effect on the war in Ukraine. It's, it's not going to bring down gas prices. It's not going to bring down food prices, but it will uh, affect the labor market. That's what he's trying to do. So if you think that wages are the only thing driving inflation, then great. Crush people's wages, problem solved. But as he's saying, that's not the case. Well, yeah. And um, it's it's been pretty sad, but I think predictable to watch what's happened over the course of uh, the pandemic economy. Um, when you see people, especially people who get uh, government money who get subsidies, then going and uh, passing costs to consumers um, and just doing buybacks, right? Like reinvesting and just like funging all this money um, in the investment space. And that's who this is ultimately good for. That's who these economies are ultimately good for. And that's how even in a, a time like this, what are what's the Fed doing? They're doing what's good for investment. And that's not to say investment doesn't have an effect downstream in the economy. Of course it does. Um, but businesses then uh, aren't acting in a way where they actually make the most of uh, how investment can be beneficial to the broader economic ecosystem. It's it just keeps going into investment. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah it, it's kind of it's really pitiful in a lot of ways. You know, we're, we're facing a problem that he describes as, you know, there, there's too much demand and not enough supply. If you're the greatest country in the world, you might say, awesome, there are p- people that are demanding things. Let's, let's figure out innovative ways to produce the supply that is yeah. going to meet that demand. Let's, let's build that better country. And instead, our system is like, actually, now, let's not do that. Let's just make it so people have less money. He talks about we're going to wipe, wipe out assets, wipe out 401ks so that people have less wealth. And because of that wealth destruction, that's going to produce demand destruction. They won't have as much money. Uh, their right. wages are going to be lower. They're going to be poorer. And that way, it's OK that we have a supply chain bottlenecks at the ports because people can't afford to buy the things on the ships anyway. So problem solved. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> congratulations. He figured it out. Yeah. If you lower your sights, you can sometimes hit your target. So, No, but that's another great example of the vicious cycle effect. It's just all the economy is in the hands of people who continue making the economy good for them. And they think that's sort of the rising tide that lifts all boats because it's worked that way in the past. But it's not how it works anymore because they've now shifted the balance of how the economy works towards just them for the yep. most part. Yep. Yep. Anyway, looking forward to what's on your radar up next. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, Washington is a city of kings. It's true the head of our education department is confirmed by the Senate, but whether that person chooses to use their powers wisely, those powers are vast beyond belief thanks to their grip in the education department over the country's purse strings. Now, in every corner of this country, communities are debating the proper social and legal response to the rising popularity of transgender ideology. Yesterday, Biden's education department overruled many of their past and potential future decisions 
not with legislation, but with a regulation and a terrible one at that. We've talked about it here many times, just about exactly a year ago, as Catherine Lehman was being confirmed to a top post at the education department, I did a radar predicting this is where we would find ourselves if she were to be confirmed. Then we talked about it again in April um, in another radar when it was abundantly obvious where all of this was headed, questioning then the Republican Party's disinterest in pressuring Biden to stop this plan. And it's probably worth remembering at this point, too, that uh, Republican Richard Nixon was the person who originally signed Title IX into law all the way back in the 1970s. Now, the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letters on Title IX interpretation had three particular flaws. They used an overly expansive definition of sexual harassment. They used an overly expansive definition of sex and they curtailed due process rights for students accused of sexual harassment and assault. Betsy DeVos walked much of that back during the Trump administration, and even to the approval of more sober observers on the left, the Washington Post editorial board, I think even. The new rule proposed by Biden arguably goes even further than Obama by threatening speech rights, defining misuse of gender pronouns as sexual harassment. Now, many conservatives actually used to decry Title IX as a bureaucratic mess that created more problems than it solved. Now they defend the policy against the left's attacks on sexual equality. But there's probably a good debate to be had about whether Title IX ever really advanced sexual equality in the aggregate anyway, giving bureaucrats vast, easy, almost immediate power that should belong to legislators. So what did these regulatory tweaks do under Obama? They intentionally stripped due process rights from students accused of sexual assault, putting more men and women through horrifically painful kangaroo courts that condemned innocent people and added to the pain of victims. They confused the definition of harassment and assault, then they thrust schools into culture wars and compliance nightmares by suddenly declaring that, quote, on the basis of sex, the famous wording from Title IX also meant on the the basis of gender identity, tying federal money those schools depended on to meeting controversial new standards based on controversial research and psychiatry. This is where it's made all the more ridiculous. In a call with reporters on the new rules, Education, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona announced the department would be releasing a separate guidance on gender identity and athletics. So if gender identity is the equivalent of sex, as Cardona's rules insist, then there is zero need for separate guidance. But if gender identity is not the equivalent of sex, then it has absolutely no place being added to on the basis of sex in Title IX, which was intended specifically to protect women on the unique biological basis of their sex. It's literally in the law. The left despised few Trump administration officials like Betsy DeVos, but when she revised the Obama-era guidelines that Biden has now brought back, they had to begrudgingly hand it to her. When the Obama guidelines fell apart, even his cheerleaders and media had to begrudgingly criticize him. The Biden administration has absolutely no moral or political incentive to bring back these disastrous rules. We've run the experiment. We know the results. The only people who were happy with those results were far left activists in Washington, D.C. and Title IX coordinators whose salaries have increased tuition costs and made campuses babysitting bureaucratic hellscapes. Now, how did our firefighters and media cover this announcement this week from the Biden administration? Well, they put the Biden administration's talking points straight into their headlines, as you can see right here. 
Now, this is how the activist class is dragging down the Democratic Party and the media. That, of course, is not to say Republicans don't have their own problems with that, but nearly every major institution from corporations to the media to Hollywood is under the thumb of cultural radicals on the left who have purged all dissent to the point where their ideas have just become unchecked nonsense. And in a country with vast federal bureaucracy based here in Washington, D.C., where administrators have incredible power at their fingertips, that unchecked nonsense becomes even more dangerous. So here's wishing Title IX a very happy 50th birthday. Ryan, I want to ask um, about that question of political incentives. I honestly cannot explain or understand what the what the Biden administration is doing here. There was widespread agreement, even on the left, that the Obama-era guidelines were bad, that they caused problems, that they infringed on due process rights, um, and the Biden administration is bringing them back. The only reason I can think of is to placate the the sort of activist wing in Washington, D.C., um, and I think some of that activist wing is probably in the education department and does sincerely believe in this. What's your read on that? What incentive is there for Biden to do this? I mean, it, it certainly isn't what you, what people are calling popularism, you know, where you where you look at polls and say, you know, where do you where do you stand on a particular issue? Uh, because like you said, the, the DeVos rules, bizarrely, because it was DeVos, were actually pretty popular. And that, and that the, you know, there had been, uh, there had been, you know, there, there had not been sufficient protections for survivors of, of sexual assault and sexual abuse in the past. People, people genuinely felt that the that there was an over that there was an overcorrection and that not allowing due process uh, not allowing some elements of due process to, to students in, in colleges was unfair. And so it kind of came back to a middle ground. And it was one of those, you know, it was one of those evolutions of policy that, you know, both sides, you know, we're mostly like, none of this is perfect, but we've gotten to a better, we've gotten to a better place as a result of this back and forth. Of course, like you said, you know, the, the hardcore activist base within that never, never felt that way. Maybe, maybe you know, the rest of the folks just kind of moved on and weren't weren't around, and so you had a a, a, a kind of proportionality question that you know, you, if you have a certain you have a small group of people who are who are extremely passionate about a particular issue, and everybody else yes. has you know kind of disagrees, but it's not a priority for them, and, and also the 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 on a, on the surface level they agree with it. Everybody's against mm-hmm. sexual assault. Um, everybody's for equality, like, and, and so if you can kind of then, you know, move your policy through that rhetoric, you're you're not going to confront a whole lot of opposition, a lot, a lot of concentrated yeah. opposition. No, I think that's a really good explanation. I remember you said that once before, and it made a lot of sense to me that this is their this is if this is your top issue and you're that passionate and you're going to push for it, and it sounds at least in spirit like it's in the right direction. Yeah. The the only other question I'll I'll toss your way, Ryan. It's a busy news day. Um, is about the Dear Colleague process, because this is basically just re-enshrining what was done through a Dear Colleague letter, um, and DeVos sort of tried to walk it back. But to me, it's just kind of crazy that because of federal funding, the Department of Education is able to have this level of regulatory power. Um, maybe you disagree with that. I, I would be curious to to hear. It just, I think it's, you know, when we're trying to go through the democratic process in all these communities around the country, whether it's on how we adjudicate sexual assaults or how we run sports teams, um, it, to have that sort of overridden by, you know, regulations from the Department of Education, to me, it seems anti-democratic. But I'm, I'm curious what you think. 
I mean, I think there there is a very important role for the administrative state to play. Uh, but I think if if it uh, gets if it, if it gets into territory outside of you know what people find is reasonable, then you're going to have enemies of the administrative state you know use those as examples to gut the entire thing. And so I think that you have to you know there has to be some you know responsibility with how that with how that power is is wielded. Mm, that's a really good yeah. point. So, yeah. but you're right. Uh, you know, it, w- this is an awfully, awfully busy day, and uh, you know, Roe v. Wade was uh, just struck down, and so we'll be back uh, in a moment uh, with more analysis of that ruling. Stick around. President Joe Biden's approval rating remains near rock bottom as Americans now squarely blame him for America's economic and inflation woes, according to the latest News Nation Decision Desk HQ poll released Thursday. It found that 97% of Americans are concerned about inflation. 72% of respondents believe inflation is the biggest problem facing the United States. 42% blame President Biden for the state of the U.S. economy. Data Science Director at Decision Desk HQ, Scott Tranter, joins us now to discuss. Scott, welcome to Rising. Morning. Thanks for having me. And so your your poll also found uh, the the lowest concern about the uh, the co- about COVID since basically since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, is is that being is that being pushed out? You think by concerns about the economy, or do you think that it reflects kind of a, a genuine kind of moving on from uh, on the part of the American people, uh, it's it's a genuine moving on by the by the public. Some of the other questions News Nation has been tracking the last six months is: Is this something you're worried about for your friends and family? Which is a good barometer for you know whether or not people think this is this is something they need to worry about. That was above fifty percent um, this time last year. Today, it's below thirty percent. So, by and large, people are less and less worried about COVID, but they certainly are worried about inflation. Mm. Scott, this question of, so we have uh, in these numbers, 42% of people blame President Biden for the state of the U.S. economy. Can you tell us how independents are breaking on that particular question and also on the general question of Biden approval ratings? Sure. Well, let's start with the last one, Biden approval ratings. This is the lowest it's been for Biden on a split since News Nation started tracking in the first part of this year, back in January for the first state of the union. And, um, you know, where independents are is they generally they split 50 50 and there aren't that many true independents left. I'm sure it's been debated quite a bit, um, but it, they, they largely believe that the government needs to do something about inflation. Whether that's true or not is a different question, um, but independents generally believe the government should be doing more. Um, they square that on on President Biden um, and then secondarily, they, they square it on their state and local officials. Um, but uh, independents generally are, are of the opinion now government and specifically the president need to do more. That's it. That's interesting. So you're finding it's, it's less that they blame him for causing the inflation, but they're more frustrated by what they see as kind of an absentee approach to inflation. Like Richard Nixon, for instance, you know, uh, famously did all sorts of things. Not, and some of it actually worked for a time period. And, you know, you can argue about what its long-term implications were, but price controls, uh, what, who did, uh, was it Ford who did whip inflation now? You know, he was, he was very kind of ceremonially, like, uh, attacking Correct. inflation. He was going to, he was going to, he was there on the job. He was, you know, he was going to do something about it. You don't see that from Biden. So, so is that, 
Is that more that it's not that they're blaming, say, like the child tax credit or the stimulus checks on, in the CARES Act for inflation? What they're saying is Biden isn't isn't trying to do anything. Yeah, well, it, it, and, you know, President Biden, they've, they've released uh, petroleum from the Strategic Reserve. They've tried certain things, not not all the things you listed there. Um, and they're certainly talking about it a whole lot. But, yeah, I think voters are expecting more from their government. Um, and more specifically from the president. I think it's a little bit of a circular um, self-feeding prophecy here. You hear the president speak about this all the time in his speeches. Um, and he, you know, I, I hear your concern. I want to do something about it. And then it doesn't do anything about it. And so I think voters are responding like, well, thank you for, for mentioning it. But what are you going to do about it since you mentioned it? Another uh, number that Ryan mentioned was 72% of respondents believe inflation is the biggest problem facing the United States. And it seems like an obvious point, but the way these polls work is you put all of these different issues in front of the respondents and they gravitate towards that one. How has this compared with past uh, responses? You know, were people saying education or healthcare um, or, or different answers before? And, and how has this number increased? I'm assuming it's been pretty pretty rapid yeah so if we were doing number one issue a year ago right around this time it still would have been COVID, but it wouldn't have been in the high 70s it would have been in the high 60s and so 70s is pretty pretty unprecedented i'm sure we could find some issue you know in pockets of healthcare and things like that 10 years ago um but 70 percent of inflation is pretty big and then when you add in the somewhat concerns you get into the 90s, which is a very eye-popping number, but it's logical, right? Whether you're paying double for gas or you're paying triple for that, you know, expensive hotel room or whatever it is, it hits all incomes, all classes, all people. Um, you know, we can argue about whether it hits certain people more or less, but everyone can at least feel inflation. And so after the French election, uh, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain put out what I thought was a really kind of telling, uh, signaling kind of tweet. He said, now, would you look at that? Macron, with a 30 percent approval rating, ended up winning election, winning re-election <laughs> because the country hated Marine Le Pen more than they hated him. Uh, he didn't say that's our strategy to go in with 30 <laughs> percent and run against somebody that they hate more than us. But it was very <laughs> it was very clear that that's what he was saying. So when you look at these numbers previously in, in, a, in a less polarized time, you would say, well, this party is dead in the water. There's absolutely no way they can win re-election in 2024. But if France and the, the world's polarization and the U.S. polarization is any guide, perhaps that's no longer true. What's, what's your read on that? I, you know, I, I tend not to look at French elections to project future U.S. elections. It's usually not a good way to go about it. Um, but what I find is interesting, let's look at the midterms here. If you look at President George W. Bush in 2004, he was... Um, uh, you know, going into those midterms was, or, I'm sorry, going to that presidential was extremely unpopular. Going into his 02 midterms, he was okay. Um, going into the 06 midterms, that's when the Republicans lost the majority. It was a disaster for them. Um, and then you look at President Obama in 12, his approval ratings weren't as bad as President Biden's um, or President Trump's at the point of the midterms, but they were certainly not great. And he went on to, you know, had a rough midterm in 2012, the Democrats did, but went on and and um, and slugged on from there. You look at where President Trump was, right? Like we were talking about his approval ratings 
um, you know, going into the midterms and how much was it going to drag down? And it certainly dragged down. So I think President Biden, this is going to hurt the midterms. I think it's an open question um, based on the last 20 years about how much it's going to hurt or not hurt um, the Republicans in 2024 um, or the Democrats in 2024, just because, you know, there's like 500 million political life cycles between now and then. Are there any figures from this poll or as somebody who's been tracking these trends in prior polls uh, that we haven't talked about yet that really stand out to you, Scott? Um, I, I hear it mentioned a while, the generic ballot, which is something we track and it's consistently tracked over the last 40, 50 years. Um, the last time we've seen the generic ballot this good for the Republicans is 2010. And that was the 2010 mm. Tea Party um, uh, takeover. And so I think we're going to see 20, 30 Republican seats. I mean, that's what the decision desk HQ News Nation projection shows is if the election held today, Republicans take 20 or 30 seats, which would certainly mean Republican House controls um, and not by a few seats, by a lot, um, and a pretty good chance to hold the Senate. So that 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 generic ballot is a good barometer for what we think it's going to look like this fall. And, ha- and the last time it looked like this for the Republicans, they won the House and the Senate. And so something to keep an eye on, you know, a little bit, you know, see the forest for the trees here a little bit, looking at those numbers. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, interesting stuff, Scott. And thank, thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks for having me. All right, and we will have more rising right after this. Stick around. The Supreme Court today struck down Roe v. Wade in an opinion written by Sam Alito. In the opinion, Alito Alito warns against a quote exercise of raw judicial power, explaining that he embraced this raw judicial power to strike down 50 years of precedent uh, to fight against raw judicial power, which brings us kind of to the history of how we got to this moment, because Alito, you know, very squarely kind of grounds his uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade in a history lesson that stretches back to the 13th century. Uh, so, Emily, Emily Jasinski, um, do, do you want to, I, I want to respond to some of Alito's history, but I want to uh, get your take on this first. Uh, what's, what's, what's your assessment of his kind of, his, his ruling here? Yeah, and I'll just first say, I don't think anywhere else in news are two people who disagree more on this issue sharing a screen um, in this really historic moment as Roe was overturned, whatever you think of it. Um, And so I I think and I hope this will be a a constructive conversation because we had a great conversation about this, Ryan, when you walked through that uh, judgment in your radar just a couple of months ago, or I guess a month and a half ago, as the Dobbs leak um, was put in Politico, you walked through um, the the reasoning stretching all the way back to Cook and everyone else um, that it, this is, Roe was decided as though we had a right to privacy. So it's found in the right to privacy um, in the Bill of Rights that if you have a right to privacy, then you have a right to abortion. And what Alito does in this opinion um, and in the draft opinion that we've known about now for some time is say, Okay, if you want to do that, um, if you if you want to root the right to abortion and the right to privacy, then there are two standards that you have to say, was this um, is this typically understood? And that's where he ends up going back to common law. Is this typically understood as privacy? 
Um, and then he goes back to Cook and walks through the history of basically common law, which our judicial system is is based on, and comes to a conclusion that uh, we mentioned in a prior block. A lot of people, even on the left, have come to, um, and, and so that's where this is that that row was never um, rooted in the sound sort of philosophical judicial uh, foundation because that right to privacy is a tenuous one. Now, whether or not uh, people have a fundamental right to abortion is a different question than whether Roe um, actually found the constitutional basis for that right. And so this is how you get something that's unthinkable happening um, because Roe was always on on shaky ground. Um, and, and Ryan, I'm curious to how you think the courts will kind of handle that going forward. Courts and states, as states try to craft their laws that codify Roe, um, that won't be subject to uh, challenges like Dobbs was um, in, in Mississippi. How do you think, you know, blue states will start handling this question? I mean, th- I mean, it's an interesting question because it, it goes to the, the motivation of these Supreme Court justices and whether you think that kind of this this is their goal, that just overturning Roe v. Wade and leaving it to the states is is where they're satisfied. But, you know, as as Alito talks about, this is a a deeply held moral question for people like people like him and for many Americans and for people who believe that abortion is tantamount to murder, then it's kind of absurd that you would say, well, abortion is murder and murder is fine in California and New York. So so I think this this is not the end of the road. And I think that, you know, if, if blue states think that you know, that they're going to be, you know, carved out of this, this move forward, I think, I think they're mistaken because I don't think uh, that they're, I, I don't think that the kind of Alito wing of this court is going to be restrained by, they're show, they've shown they're not going to be uh, restrained by precedence or even by logic. And I feel like kind of a sucker getting into like parsing the history and parsing his, his, uh, his language here, because I think this is about raw power. And I think that both sides would, you know, are just are searching for the rationalizations for what, you know, for their pre their, you know, the beliefs that they they already have here. But I think it's worth going through it because I think the gap between kind of the kind of intellectual case that and the historical case that Alito makes and reality is is instructive of how far he's he's willing to go. And so what we didn't have before was the dissent. And so obviously the dissent is from the three liberal justices who remain on the court uh, or her on the court at the time. No, go ahead. Justice Roberts filed a concurring opinion, but he, he did not join the majority opinion. So overturning Roe is sort of like five, three, one. And hmm. Dobbs is that's that's one way to think of it, actually. But he concurred that it should be overturned, basically. Right. Yeah. Four, three, one. Right. Yeah, he exactly. Yep. Interesting. Okay, so uh, so to, to read from the dissent here, um, so they, they write second, and we can go back to what their first point was, second, and embarrassingly for the majority, early law, in fact, does provide some support for abortion rights. Common law authorities did not treat abortion as a crime before, quote, quickening the point when the fetus moved in the womb. And early American law followed the common law rule. So the criminal law of that early time might be taken as roughly consonant with Rose and Casey's different treatment of early 
and late abortion. And that goes back to what, you know, Roe called the viability standard. So, mm -hmm. you know, what they called it, you know, what George Washington would have called it was pre-quickening and what Roe called it was viability. And in both cases, it, that, was, it, that was not to be criminalized. It was the woman's right to choose what to do with a pregnancy, pre-quickening or viability. And so Alito has written this thousand year history because he literally goes back to the 1200s for, for some of this. And, and he just kind of slides past the fact that abortion in common law and in early American law was legal. Now, he leans heavily on the fact that in the 1800s, you started to have some uh, criminal laws put, in, put into place. Of course, women couldn't vote then. And so women get the vote in 1920, 50 years later, we, they've enshrined, you know, we've enshrined uh, you know, uh, Roe in, row into, the, into, the, into the law. Uh, so how, how, do, how does Alito and, and how, do the, how does the kind of conservative kind of intellectual movement around here square the fact that pre-quickening at the time of the Bill of Rights, abortion was legal? How does he square that with his claim that abortion's always basically been illegal and there's no kind of fundamental foundational history of that in the United States? Well, when the right to privacy was enshrined in the Constitution, I think actually this was in the draft opinion. When the, the right to privacy was enshrined, um, it, I believe abortion was illegal. Um, and I'll, I'll double check that in like many places. So in the like United half States. the, yeah, half the, yeah, it's half the country, a significant number of the country, right? Right. And so this question of whether um, the right to privacy, and this is what Roe gets into, because Roe cites Cook as well, the English common law it goes back hundreds of years and cites English common law because it has to prove that this is historically understood as a right to privacy. And so I think that's where Alito comes in and says, well, when the Fourth Amendment um, becomes law, then this is what this is what the country looked like. And so I think that's sort of how and that's how the evolution makes sense from the conservative perspective. But I would also say from the conservative perspective, um, Roe is just in and of itself not the topic at hand, as you just mentioned, if you're like me and you believe that uh, abortion is kills a life, um, then you th this question of privacy doesn't even make sense. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's sort of where some of the disconnect in the conversation is. Um, and Roe itself was just such an odd way to get to this um, that it was I mean, it's it's been confusing for years and decades because of that. And so, right. So to your point on the when the 14th Amendment was implemented, the, the dissent writes, the majority makes this change based on a single question. Did the reproductive right recognized in Roe and Casey exist in, quote, 1868, the year when the 14th Amendment was ratified, unquote? The majority says yes. And with this much, we agree that the answer to this question is no. In 1868, there was no nationwide right to end a pregnancy and no thought that the 14th Amendment provided one. Uh, and so, the, so right, Alito is saying everything hinges on whether or not there was a abortion right, federally guaranteed abortion right in 1868, the year that uh, you had the 14th Amendment. And the, the dissent says, well, no, but that's not, the, that's not remotely the point, uh, that, you know, that it, had, it had been, you know, no, and nobody really thought that that necessarily was the thing that was legalizing abortion uh, nationwide. So, what? So, what do you? Where do you think they do take this from here? And I'm so in Oklahoma, for instance. Um, 
they're are, are, they're now ban they're now trying to ban um, what they what they're calling abortion after uh, fertilization, and so fertilization as everybody knows or if they don't know they can Google comes before implantation, uh, and so oftentimes in normal methods of birth control IUD birth control pill what what those methods of birth control do is they they don't stop fertilization what they stop is implantation, and so is that you know, where, 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 where are we heading next here? Now, I mean, not, and, not that, and I don't want to say that heading, where we're heading next is uh, more important than where we are now, because you know, for millions of people now, they have just lost the right to abortion like as of today. Yeah, no, I mean, it's absolutely true. Although if they live in many states, they still have that right, um, because Roe just does turn it back to the states. That is a really, really, really important um, element of all of this that you just highlighted, because even um, the morning after pill, it's unclear whether that prevents implantation in certain cases. And this may sound technical um, and it may sound uh, completely off topic, but it's really not. This question of implantation um, and fertilization, it's even um, IVF is now going to be on the table. These are discussions that have not been really at the forefront ever um, that are now going to be thrust into the spotlight because state laws are going to have to talk about defining life in a very granular and particular way because we have these sort of technological advancements, whether it is IVF, whether it is birth control, which we don't think of as a technology, but in the way that women, most common forms of it that women take now um, are fairly new. Um, and that's going to, the, this question of implantation becomes a huge one. And, and the, the thing I'll say on that is a, a lot of people on the right um, we talked about this in an earlier block, are not prepared to reckon with the consequences of a post-Roe world. They have never really wanted Roe overturned, um, and they didn't understand or they didn't want the implications because uh, the, the implications are deeper than some folks may have realized because if, if that's, you know, if that's where we are, then you're going to have these state laws on the table. Um, and so it's, this is going to be, to the surprise of many people, I think they're going to find this will be a very bitter fight on the right. Um, and uh, Ryan, I don't know about you. Um, I, I think this is setting us up for the rest of the summer to be um, a perhaps a violent one. And people should be protesting, celebrating whatever they're doing. I, I think that's the, that will be um, a sight to behold. And it will be, you know, it'll look a lot like America. Um, but I also do worry that this is so sweeping. Um, it'll, it'll be a, a bloody summer, frankly. Yeah, and the, the post the new name for the post row world now is the world, uh, and so the just to run through quickly for people who are concerned. Uh, the, so he, these are the states with the trigger laws. This comes from the Washington Post. You can find it. So Idaho has a trigger law, so that that says that 30 days from today, uh, abortion is uh, abortion is banned. Um, I, I don't I don't know the the details and what what exceptions they might have in there. Uh, Utah has a trigger ban that takes effect within just a couple of days. Uh, this, the, their general counsel has to certify it. Uh, Wyoming has a trigger law. It takes effect within 30 days. Uh, North Dakota, within 30 days. Uh, South Dakota, that takes effect immediately. And so, like, as of now, you know, abortion is being banned in South, South Dakota. Uh, Oklahoma, basically, they already banned it. Uh, Texas basically has already uh, banned it. 
Um, but they also have a full trigger law. Uh, Missouri uh, has, a, has a trigger ban that takes effect just within days. Uh, Arkansas, uh, as soon as their attorney general certifies the Supreme Court decision, the ban goes into place. Louisiana uh, has a trigger ban that goes into, goes into effect immediately. Uh, Tennessee, 30 days. Uh, Kentucky goes into place immediately. Mississippi has one that goes within days. Um, Alabama, Georgia has a six-week ban that's from 2019 that is pending this. So you know they will presumably go to the Supreme Court, and Supreme Court will then rule on whether or not the six-week ban uh, is is constitutional. Because now when you get to six-week, a lot of people don't even know they're pregnant, depending on when you count um, by, oh, yeah. by six weeks. So what they're trying to do is, you know, uh, carve out exception. Well, we talked about implantation. That's a different question. But if you're, go- if you're down to six weeks, that's basically like... Once you know you're pregnant, it's too late to do anything about it. Uh, South Carolina, also six-week ban. West Virginia, uh, a ban. Ohio, Indiana, Iowa. Obviously, people can you know, go, go to the Watch Post or you can just Google around and find out. But these, we're not waiting around uh, for, uh, for the implications of this because these, many of these red states have already uh, enacted bans just waiting for this moment to come. So we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing this more, I'm sure, soon. Um, we have to leave it uh, there for now. Uh, we'll have more rising in just, just a moment. A recent article in the New York Times tracks how the city of Houston, America's fourth largest city, managed to cut homelessness by an astounding 63% over the last decade. The city has moved more than 25,000 homeless people directly into apartments and houses, and the overwhelming majority of them have remained housed after two years. Now, according to the Times, Houston has gotten this far by teaming with county agencies and persuading scores of local service providers, corporations, charitable nonprofits to work in unison. The leader of one of those nonprofits joins us now. Mike Nichols is president and CEO of Coalition for the Homeless. Mike, welcome to Rising. Ryan, thanks for having me. Deeply appreciative. Sure. So, so Mike, how did this how did this come together? What what was homeless policy, you know, bef- before this kind of new approach in Houston? In 2011, HUD not- notified the, the Houston environs that we were a problem because we had so many homeless people. At that time, the current the mayor at that time, Anise Parker, along with leaders in the nonprofit and business world got together and said, we need to solve this problem. What came to be was um, a, a, a continuum of care. Part of that came out of the Obama administration when they established the Hearth Act, which is an act that said uh, communities need to, when they ask for money from HUD, do it in a community way. So communi- com- continuum of care was established. That continuum of care chose the Coalition for the Homeless as its lead agency. Uh, The lead agency acts as the conductor for more than 100 different nonprofits and government entities. With that establishment, a decision was made to focus on supportive, permanent supportive housing. That's a three-leg approach to housing a homeless person. To count them as housed, they have to have a real unit, an apartment with a key and a lock and air conditioning and heating and a refrigerator and stove. They have to have payment through usually a voucher, federal voucher for that apartment. And they have to have services 
which are also fully funded, uh, not, not volunteer services, but fully funded, usually provided by a nonprofit. With that in intention, with that focus, with the collaboration between government, nonprofits, um, business community, philanthropy, 25,000 people were housed in the supportive housing with an outstand, outstanding result of 85% of those people remaining in housing. Um, this, is, this is a system that all, the, all communities can use. And we, look, we are glad to have people come and see what we are doing. Houston so has it been, not be unique. Yeah, so has it been a matter of kind of centralizing services or streamlining services and, and making the programs work better for people in, in Houston, like bringing it all into a, a better system? I, so the, the LA Times said, here's what LA could learn from Houston. They said it's three things. It is organization, pragmatism, scale. Organization is that there is an entity. I really like our system that we have a nonprofit as the lead agencies. Many folks use city and county government as the lead agency, but a nonprofit can bring together the business community, philanthropy, city government, county government, other cities, um, metro, other entities into our system. Uh, secondly, we, it is voluntary that the nonprofits choose a path. But over time, the nonprofits have tried to stop, stop stepping on each other's toes and choose a path so they could have an expertise. One of our great partners used to do everything for the homeless from feeding them to jobs to other things. Now they are focused on case management and outreach, two things that they do well and can support the system. But again, we use all sort of entities, not just uh, secular nonprofits, but faith-based communities to do their work. And we work with them, um, both those that are funded through the coalition and the continual care and non-funded. We work as partners to solve this problem of homelessness. And this collaboration has been key. And what about what about pragmatism, uh, the no number two? How does, how does that play in? All right, so this is, this is difficult. A decision was made in 2011, that two things. One is we would have coordinated access. When a homeless person comes into, system, into the system, they would be assessed and given a score, a vulnerability score. With that score, they then go to what part of the list. In the old days, before 2011, it depended who, which group you walked into. If you walked into the Salvation Army, Star of Hope, Search, that would depend when you would get housing. This vulnerability scale says the people who are most likely to down the streets, they get first choice. Now, this was controversial because many people say, oh, we ought to give first choice to those people who are most likely to succeed. But Houston made the decision that was fiscally responsible, fiscally and morally responsible to focus on the most vulnerable. And the pleasant surprise, the excitement, is those people have succeeded at 85% rate. Not 100%, but at a very successful 85% rate. So that's one, is this coordinated access the second is the focus on supportive housing. Our continuum, our funding stream, do not pay for emergency shelters like many cities. Emergency shelters are a big part of our partnership, but they are privately funded. So the, as much money as possible goes to putting vulnerable homeless people into permanent supportive housing. That's the goal, that's the focus, that's the pragmatism. 
So in Washington, D.C., where Ryan and I are based, um, synthetic opioids like fentanyl are ravaging the city and particularly hitting the the homeless community very hard. Um, and I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the effects of, of fentanyl in Houston and then how you're able to have that 85 percent number, um, you know, by treating mental health and addiction as well. What part of the equation is, is that? I, I, I am a our organization and our focus is on supportive housing. So we do partner with wonderful organizations, particularly the Harris Center, which is our mental health and mental and uh, IDD uh, authority. They've been terrific partners, the Sobering Center, terrific partners. But the philosophy, and this is unique, is, but it's, it's, our data shows it's correct. The philosophy is get someone housing and then they will begin to solve their substance issues or their mental health issues. The housing mm -hmm. is the first and most important step. And without it, you can spend a lot of money, a lot of money, and not help people move forward. So our philosophy is focus on the housing, give them the services that they need to beat their drug addiction and their issues. But first, get them off the street. First, get them out of the unsheltered areas. In most neighborhoods, when you try to create supportive housing for a homeless population, you're, you're going to have the neighbors in that neighborhood say, no, not in my backyard, the, the, fa the very famous NIMBYs. How have, how have you been able to kind of maneuver you know, through or around the, the NIMBY problem? Of the 8,000 people who are currently in permanent housing in Houston through our programs, again, the services, et cetera, uh, so about uh, 6,800 of those are in what we call scattered sites. Those are just apartment mm -hmm. uh, developments, and they can be from one to two to 20. Um, Sometimes we get more. We'd like to keep it around 30 or 40 people um, have, are living in each entity. And what happens is they're able to be integrated in the community. Um, I think it's very important. Landlords are a central part of our system, an essential part of our progress, working with those landlords, making sure they know that the services that are provided to these clients. I think that's a very successful way. And uh, I, I wish there were more laws and funding that would encourage landlords, even in affordable housing, to take 20 or 30% of those units and give them, or lease them, not give them, lease them to formerly homeless people. But that's how we work. We have a landlord engagement team that focuses on these individual landlords to put folks in scattered sites. And that's been very successful. Hmm. Now, I'm wondering, you mentioned the Los Angeles Times op-ed. Um, have you guys had many people from other cities knocking on your doors in, in Houston um, and, and trying to figure out how they can replicate your model elsewhere? We, we've seen people from Spokane, from Anchorage, from many other cities over the my, during my tenure of the last three years um, obviously with an article like this more folks are looking at us um, i'm i'm hoping and i'm have uh, asked our congressman to give uh, me a chance to speak to hud secretary fudge to let them see what we're doing directly um, and tell her about some of the opportunities that hud could have to improve their system in housing people um, we we're excited to hear the news of additional funding yesterday, but again, I certainly look forward to HUD and other agencies finding way to help those who are living unsheltered. Uh, right. But the communities so all over are coming to see us. Yes. How, how mm -hmm. far do you, how far do you still have to go? You've made a 
huge dent, you know, 60 plus percent. Uh, but what it, what's the remaining uh, population that you still have to house? So once a year, HUD requires us to do what's called a point in time count that was done in January, late February, early February. And about 4,000 people were li either living unsheltered or, um, or in emergency shelters. Our goal is to end what we call chronic homelessness. That is a technical term that means that if someone is chronically homeless, been disabled, homeless for more than a year, we can find them housing in 30 days. That's our goal. I'm, you know, it, it a lot depends on uh, how fast we get there based on how many landlords will work with us uh, and the continuation of funding. Um, but we're, we're, ex we're optimistic about uh, meeting that goal in the next couple of two years or so. Um, we're optimistic about ending that technical goal. We, end, we ended veterans homelessness, again, a technical term a couple of years ago. And so if a veteran shows up in our system, that person can get housed within 30 days. One well, more quick question, actually, is just uh, how Houston's dealt with encampments, because uh, the New York Times article actually starts with that. And that's a, an issue that's been really difficult for Washington, D.C., for New York, for cities all over the country. Um, th those encampments, what is the policy in Houston um, policing and just in terms of you know, whether people are allowed to, to camp in public? So we've had a really great collaboration with the city because we're not the city and we're not the county. We've had great collaboration with the city and the police. And our system is that we will go into an encampment and we will offer housing to people in the encampment. And if we can offer immediate housing, which we've done through some of our programs, particularly our COVID housing program, we can offer immediate housing to those people. Most every one of them will say, yes, we'll, we're coming with you to go to an apartment. Once the individuals are housed, then the police, the county, the city, the cleanup crews, te uh, Texas Department of Transportation will come in and close off those areas because those people have been housed. So our role is housing the folks in support of housing and working constructively with the city and county to, to be our follow-up. We're not in charge of closing the encampments. One of the things I wanna make sure that the listeners understand is politically closing the encampments is something that's important, but morally what's important is housing the unsheltered. That's the focus. And that's what I hope everybody, everybody will begin focusing on. I'm sad to learn that some cities have closed encampments and now have homeless people living in the woods where outreach workers are afraid to go, where people are hard to find. Uh, we in Houston that we saw that happening before 2011, and we learned well that the right thing to do is put people in housing. Um, and I want to say one other thing: it's fiscally appropriate to house people. It cost us about eighteen thousand dollars in federal dollars, um, all federal dollars, to house an individual for one year in support of housing. Please compare that to an estimate when we had estimate, wide range of estimates, but I, my estimate is about $50,000 per year for a person living unsheltered or in a, uh, in a um, emergency shelter mm -hmm. uh, because of emergency health care, because of policing, because of cleanup. Um, it's just physically responsible. And I'm always saddened to see certain groups of um, with uh, so-called conservatives oppose what we're doing 
and not seeing the fiscal responsibility. Um, it cost about $35,000 to keep a person in Harris County Jail. Um, and, and the 10,000 people in Harris County Jail, um, uh, 5,000 said they have mental health or substance issues, right. 3,000 right. self-identify as homelessness. Yeah, and what, uh, that's if it's fiscally responsible to put people in the housing. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a great, great example of what is it, penny wise and, and pound foolish. But we have to we have to leave it there. Uh, but thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And yes, we're welcome to see folks from Washington, D.C. or elsewhere to tell them our story and the hurdles we have to face. Well, if you're ever up here, uh, come by the studio. Love to have you in. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> stick around. We'll have more rising right after this. Pete Buttigieg has what could be one of the most important jobs in the country, though he isn't doing it. Co-editor of the American Prospect and professor at Brandeis University's Heller School, Bob Kuttner, is here to talk with us about his latest article on Transportation Secretary Buttigieg. Bob, welcome to Rising. Thank you for having me. And so you know, talk, talk a little bit about your, your assessment of uh, Buttigieg's uh, kind of uh, no-show no transportation secretaryship so far. Well, it, it's interesting. It isn't quite a no-show transportation secretaryship. I mean, the, the the relatively easy stuff, like like pumping out money under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, he's all too happy to do. And he has played a pretty decent role in the supply chain uh, area, where DOT has uh, a role to play. But he really has not done much with the airline mess, which is the biggest single mess. And despite airline deregulation, which was enacted in uh, 1978, Congress left the Transportation Department and the FAA with a fair degree of residual power to go after abusive actions by the airlines. So here the airlines took $60 billion in bailouts, right, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic to keep the transportation system flying. And um, part of the deal was that they wouldn't lay off staff. So the airlines got around that by creating incentives for pilots to take early retirement so they could save money on, on staffing costs. And the big abuse right now is last-minute cancellations. There, there were 2,700 cancellations over Memorial Day weekend. There are going to be more last-minute cancellations over Fourth of July weekend. And the reason for these cancellations is that the airlines are saving money by not having adequate crews, not, and that mostly means pilots. And it's not because of a pilot shortage. It's because there are plenty of pilots. But the airlines won't put the pilots on their payroll while they're retraining them to put them where they're needed. And uh, before the pandemic, you had spare crews. So if there was a weather delay and a crew couldn't get to where it was needed, the airline could bring in another crew. The other thing the airlines do is uh, when they cancel a flight, they're supposed to give you your money back. What the airlines try to do is they try to get passengers to take credits so that the airlines keep the money until the time that the passenger books a new flight. And Buttigieg has the power to go after all of this, but he's been AWOL. I mean, I looked up his 60 most recent speeches, and he talked about everything except abuses uh, in the airlines. And, uh, you know, a cynic might say that this is because he's running for president, and he doesn't want to take on a powerful industry. But, geez, you would think, given how frustrated consumers are and given that the Biden administration is looking for everything it possibly can find to demonstrate that it's on the side of consumers against abusive industries, Buttigieg would be on the front lines of this. 
Well, and especially considering the incredible amount of money that uh, we subsidized the airline industry with over the last couple of years. And on that question, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this uh, article, which I thought was just absolutely fantastic, is because people are going to be facing this throughout the next week. It's a holiday week. Summer travel in general in general, has been upended. Can you tell us why you think it is? I mean, you do a great job of pointing out what the problem is and the fact that Buttigieg has the power, the power exists. Um, can you get into a little bit more of why you think Pete Buttigieg isn't using it? Well, you know, if I were being cynical, I, I would say that he's running for president. I mean, this is pretty obvious. The Post, a couple of months ago, you know, ranked the most likely nominees uh, in 2024. Biden ranked first. Uh, Buttigieg was ranked second uh, ahead of Kamala Harris. And so if you look at his speeches, you know, they're on every conceivable subject other than the airlines. So that tells you something about um, how he's playing this. I, I, I don't want to psychologize his motivation, but just based on what he's talking about, it looks like this is a man with a much broader interest than what I called his day job. Um, there are also some tricky legal questions. Uh, I mean, the problem with the, the transportation department, going back to 1938, when the airlines were first regulated, uh, you know, it's one part part promoting the airline industry, and it's one part protecting consumers. And over the years, uh, DOT and the FAA have become a kind of a captured agency where their, their primary loyalty is to the airline industry when it ought to be to the flying public. And so I think he's up against a, uh, an entrenched subculture that is very much pro-industry. There's a kind of revolving door. A lot of people go to work for FAA, then they go to work for the industry for a lot more money. And he would have to really take that on. He'd have to be fairly aggressive in taking on some legal challenges. There was an episode in 2010 when Ray LaHood, who was actually a Republican, who was Barack Obama's transportation secretary, went after the airlines. Remember the tarmac delays where, where you, would, mm -hmm. you would get out on the tarmac and then for whatever reason, the, the plane wouldn't be able to take off and they wouldn't let you go back to the gate. And there were tarmac delays as long as 12 hours with no food, no water, toilets not working, screaming babies. And LaHood finally said, I'm just going to use my residual power as transportation secretary. I'm going to issue a rule. I'm going to fine the airlines $27,500 for every single passenger who's on a plane on the tarmac for longer than three hours. And the airlines went along with it. So I guess my question is, uh, LaHood was a Republican. Uh, these abuses are every bit as bad as the tarmac abuses. I mean, they're they're cancellations based on schedules that the airlines publish that they don't have enough crews to meet. And this is an abuse. So I would think uh, Buttigieg would be at least as aggressive as Ray LaHood. And Buttigieg re recently met with a bunch of uh, airline executives. And then right after that meeting, his own flight back to Washington, D.C. was canceled. Uh, is there anything we can read from the combination of those things? Is there, is there a sense that maybe he's finally getting the importance of this? I think he's getting some pushback. I mean, I think he's getting some pushback from the consumer groups. I think he's getting some unflattering press, and he's accustomed mostly to flattering press. Uh, the the um, fact that his own flight was canceled, he experienced this firsthand. And, you know, that meeting with the airlines executives was very much of a low-key, can't you guys do a little bit better, it wasn't a public statement attacking them, criticizing them, uh, threatening to do a wholesale investigation of their 
their fraudulent uh, uh, staffing. So you would think at this point, especially if this happens again uh, over Fourth of July weekend, and there's no way it isn't. I mean, they, this is a structural problem. They can't fix this on a week's notice. Maybe he'll become more aggressive. You would think. <laughs> so we'll see, Bob. Uh, you know, hopefully he reads your piece and says maybe I need to do something about this. Appreciate you uh, joining us here. Thanks so much. And we'll have more Rising right after this. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has warned that Republicans, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, will soon be moving to ban abortion nationwide. Let's play a clip of that. Because of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican Party, their supermajority in the Supreme Court, American women today have less freedom than their mothers. With Roe and their attempt to destroy it, radical Republicans are charging ahead with their crusade to criminalize health freedom. In the Congress, be aware of this, the Republicans are plotting a nationwide abortion ban. They cannot be allowed to have a majority in the Congress to do that, but that's their goal. And if you read, and again, we're all studying all this, but if you read what is in the very clear, one of the justices had his own statement. It's about contraception, in vitro fertilization, family planning. That is all what will spring from their decision that they made today. And Emily, even though you and I couldn't disagree more on on this issue, I'm glad we can talk about it because I, I have found you to be unusually honest when it comes to this question. So many, so many, so many conservatives kind of hedge and couch, you know, where, where they where the movement is actually going. No, it's just about leaving it to the states. No, it's just about a 20 week ban. No, it's really only late term abortion. No, we're fine with exemptions for incest and for rape and the, the life of the mother. No, it's the, don't worry. Don't worry. Whereas I, I found you to be more upfront about like what the actual goals of the of the movement are. And so how would you how would you classify uh, Pelosi's warning there? It's interesting because there's a schism in the Republican Party. And we've talked about this. I brought this up. We talked about this early in the show. I firmly believe that the Republican establishment has placated the pro-life movement um, and is probably not super happy uh, with this decision. They think it's politically damaging. They tend to be more socially liberal. If you go back and look at the 2012 autopsy, which didn't mention abortion, but you could kind of read that into it, um, saying that the party needed to liberalize on social issues, which would put them more in step with the personal beliefs of a lot of people in Washington, D.C., um, uh, that they socialize with, et cetera, and also with where they think is what they think is politically helpful. So I don't know that you're going to see like the, the pro-life movement's goals. Um, I, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is far off on that at all, because I think it, if you believe that life begins at conception, which I understand sounds crazy to other people, um, but you know, this is my interpretation of the science. And, um, you know, that's where I come down on the question. Um, if you believe life begins at conception, then you do have to reconsider 
plan B. You do have to reconsider morning after pills. You have to reconsider certain forms of contraception. You have to reconsider IVF. And I know that sounds extreme and I know things have been mainstreamed really quickly, but my sort of personal perspective from 30,000 feet on that is we had a lot of technological advancements that happened in the second half of the 20th century really quickly. Um, and they were adopted really quickly. And um, there are good reasons to reconsider some of them at this point. But the honest the, the honest perspective on this absolutely is that for the pro-life movement, those things are going to be on the table. For the Republican Party, that's a different question. And were, were you surprised to see Clarence Thomas kind of say that out loud in his concurring opinion with this decision? Yeah, so let me see if I have the quote from Clarence Thomas directly. I don't, I don't have it up, but I think he said something that actually, I'm curious for your take on this, the left should be fully in with Clarence Thomas on what he said. He said, this ruling applies to abortion, but in the future, the court should consider whether the right to privacy um, applies as it has been applied in the past. And the reason I think the left should be eager to adopt that standard and have that conversation is because the, when the court rooted Obergefell and Roe and other decisions in the right to privacy, that is not the most solid constitutional foundation for those rights. So if you believe in the right that Obergefell found, find a different place or a different legal justification for it um, and, and stop relying on this reflex with the right to privacy that I think Roe really started to normalize and left uh, sort of judicial circles. And my response with that would be that this isn't really about what, where the actual rights are rooted and in what what amendment or in what kind of reading of the Constitution. It's about the votes. And if you've got six right. to three, you're going to be able to do what you want. If you, if you don't, you don't. Clarence Thomas, we have some of his quote here. He writes, quote, in, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. And if you reconsider them under the rationale of this Alito ruling, it does seem that they all fall, like all, none, none of those can stand up. And I want to read some of the dissent to see if you, you agree that, in fact, this, this new ruling would actually make all of these cases uh, you know, un, unconstitutional and overturned. So this is, the dissent is talking about the 14th Amendment here, and, and they write, if the ratifiers did not understand something as central to freedom, then neither can we. Or said more particularly, if those people did not understand reproductive rights as part of the guarantee of liberty conferred in the 14th Amendment, then those rights do not exist. That's summarizing Alito's opinion. As an initial matter, they write, note a mistake in the just preceding sentence. We referred to the, quote, people who ratified the 14th Amendment. What rights did these, quote, people have in their heads at the time? But of course, people, quote, did not ratify the 14th Amendment. Men did. So it is perhaps not so surprising that the ratifiers were not perfectly attuned to the importance of reproductive rights for women's liberty or for their capacity to participate as equal members of our nation. Indeed, the ratifiers, both in 1868 and when the original Constitution was approved in 1788, did not understand women as full members of the community embraced by the phrase, quote, we the people. And it goes, and it goes on from there to say that some of our uh, most celebrated and proudest achievements here at the Supreme Court 
are as we have expanded what is understood as we the people. And, she, and they mention Obergefell with legalizing marriage equality. And so if, if you say that, well, hey, look, uh, in 1868, there was, no, there was no legalized marriage equality. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, so therefore, uh, we don't have it now. Like, that's basically the same ruling that we have with, with Roe. Uh, isn't it the case that all of these fall, and, and run through real quickly, Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, what, what kind of established rights here would we see collapse? Yeah, I mean, I think sexual freedom, um, those, that's what those cases pertain to. Right. And the, the question, though, is from the perspective of what they're arguing is if you are going to root this in the 14th Amendment, if you're going to say this is based on a right to privacy, then um, it has to be predicated on this sort of originalist understanding of the law at the time. Like that is a logical way to uh, interpret the right if it's enshrined in the right to privacy. And that's why I think it was always a mistake. As you say, Ryan, it's about the votes. Like this is the, the Supreme Court has become just like a naked sort of ideological power tug of war. And uh, in that tug of war, you get Roe, you get Obergefell and whatever you think of the rights that came from those decisions, um, it, it's always felt like sort of judicial mental gymnastics to get to that right. And there are better ways if, if that's a perspective, I think there are better ways to get there um, in terms of rights. And the other thing is the Constitution has sort of worked on this question of abortion in that plenty of states now have done what they believe their people want in terms of abortion access. Um, and the, the right to privacy question aside, um, you know, it, it's that's all going to be on the table for sure, for sure, going forward. Just feels like what what, you know, what good are constitutional Right. What good is the Constitution if it's telling us that Oklahoma can just ban contraception? Oklahoma can, uh, you know, ban consensual sex between uh, men or between women. I mean, that's, you know, Lawrence is, is consensual sex. Griswold is, is contraception. Uh, yeah. Do we not have, are, are those rights just up for grabs now? Every two years we'll put them on the ballot box. And, and if you move from well, one state to another, now you're no longer married. And this is something that we've dealt with for, I mean, what they're talking about in the dissent is a very real problem, that the founders had the perspectives of um, white men of privilege, and that might sound like leftist language to anybody on the right that's watching, but it's true. They absolutely had that privilege. They absolutely had that perspective. And so, for instance, can Oklahoma suddenly say the 19th Amendment doesn't apply in, in Oklahoma and, and women can't vote in Oklahoma? No. Um, and, and that's why it's better to find... Um, but I see what you're saying, right? That like this is it, it's we're all getting caught in the judicial tug of war, and that disturbs me. I think probably as much as it disturbs you, um, which is why I think sort of deciding these issues with votes on the state level is, I mean, probably with the consensus of people in in different communities is probably even though it seems counterintuitive a, war, a more stable way to decide some of these questions. Um, Congress is constantly punting to the courts. It's constantly punting on these questions. It doesn't pass meaningful legislation legislation for the most part anymore, which is partially why we're caught up in this judicial tug of war. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I'm, I think I'm as disturbed as that, uh, about that as you are. It just seems like having like the community vote on, uh, let's say a contraception fails for a teenager, she gets pregnant and having the community vote on whether she can get an abortion or you know, a bunch of my kids, uh, friends are in, uh, same sex marriages now, like at putting that up for a vote, um, 
among the community, whether or not they can continue to be married just seems just so, so backwards. It seems, and I understand, it seems cruel um, because that's, and that's part of the problem of this judicial system that we've gotten ourselves into is now there's like this weird attempt to put a genie back inside of a bottle um, that is very bizarre and difficult and will absolutely have cruel um, implications. There's just, there's, I don't think there's any way around that. Um, and I think that's partially why people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg would look back on the, the logic of the Roe decision and say, this was a mistake. This is going to be a problem for the left at some point because this right to privacy is just not the best place to root what is. Right, but then they fixed it in Casey and went with due process and like, well, that, throwing that out too. But it well, feels like nothing was, nothing was, there was, there was no like argument that would have satisfied Alito here. He, he didn't, doesn't like abortion and he wants to make that the law of the land, right? Whether there is an argument that would have satisfied him is actually a very interesting question because uh, Casey is a, a great example of why that's an interesting question um, because there were Republican appointed justices uh, that did not side in the way a lot of conservatives would have uh, wanted them to for years. And so the I think the pro-life movement, um, as we call it on the right, has had a very big, very big victory today, um, Done accomplished basically what is always been thought of as impossible with uh, particular appointments um, that learned from what happened in Casey. Um, but I, I, that is a point that's well taken. Yeah, and so uh, protesters and, and probably celebrants are already headed down to uh, the Supreme Court. I, uh, I, well, you're, you're actually not in Washington, D.C., so you won't be there, but I'm going to head down there um, after, now, that, now that we're wrapped with uh, today's rising. Um, but is there anything else you wanted to add? No, not at all. Uh, Senator Rubio is already out with a, a framework to protect families, to support families and mothers um, in a post-Roe world, which, as you say, Ryan, is now the world. Um, and I think we will see some good proposals coming out from Republicans. I'd encourage people to keep an eye on those. Uh, but other than that, I, I hope that you stay safe. And uh, I hope everyone around the country, as these demonstrations flare up, whether they're celebrations or protests, uh, stay safe as well. That's it for today's Rising Friday. Eliana Lauren and Robbie will be back in the studio on Monday. I will be gone uh, next week, but Emily will be back in the studio. Have a safe weekend, everybody. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, check out our podcast. You can get it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Don't forget to leave a review if you like Ryan's new haircut. There you go. That's right. Thumbs up on the haircut. See you next week, everyone.